It's the first day of October, and we're just two days away from the start of the next Supreme Court session. This is a court that made some dramatic decisions the last time around. It's also a court featuring Joe Biden's first appointee, Katanji Brown-Jackson. We'll explore more about what's on the docket for SCOTUS. We'll also talk about life on the Mississippi circa 2022 and bring you up to date on the latest regarding a local elementary school that is at risk of losing its home, the situation involving River Grove School and the Wilder Foundation. It's Saturday, October 1st, and River Radio is jam-packed and ready to rock. Coming to you from our studios in beautiful Midtown Marina on St. Croix, bordering the wild and scenic St. Croix River, this is River Radio. I'm Jim Maher. And I'm Gail Knudsen. Thanks to our technical director, Matt Quast, Elaine Larson, who does our webpage, and Laura Lee D. Lorenzo handles publicity. Also, thanks to Chan Poling and the suburbs for our theme music. The program is produced by Jim and Gail and presented by the Marine Community Library. The library is located on the traditional ancestral and contemporary homelands of Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples. On today's program, Jim talks with the Honorable John Thunheim, U.S. District Judge for the District Court of Minnesota, about the upcoming Supreme Court session and other court matters. I'll chat with Robin Garwood, who just recently completed an artist-in-residence stint at Pine Needles and Marine, and earlier this summer paddled the length of the Mississippi River from Lake Itasca to the Gulf of Mexico. We'll also bring everybody up to date with the latest concerning the planned sale of the wild forest property and how that might impact the River Grove Charter School. Uh, all shows, including everything from the past three seasons, are available wherever you get your podcasts or at the River Radio page on the library's website, marinecommunitylibrary.org. Well, as we take a look back at some of the news since we did our last program a couple weeks ago, Gail, undoubtedly the big story this week is Hurricane Ian, which really, really battered Florida. And it's a, Florida was an area that's kind of very familiar to us um, around that Fort Myers, Naples, Sanibel Island stretch. Um, it's a place that a lot of Midwesterners go and we have a few friends that own properties down there. So I think some of them are waiting to hear yet. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and you and I, you know, in years past spent considerable time down there because we had parents who would winter down in that area. So I, I can't imagine what it looks like right now. It's just a whole different scenario almost looks like a war zone i think yeah it does from all the uh, video that we've seen for sure uh speaking of war zones following up on our last show in our conversations uh with nick hayes and with christina sanitska uh so much has happened in the war in ukraine since then uh vladimir putin began to call up hundreds of thousands of more russians into service to enter the fight now nick hayes had talked to us about he he thought that wasn't necessarily something Putin really wanted to do, to do or would do because it might create a lot more consternation among the Russian people about what about the war and whether they should continue to that. But uh, there's been a big exodus of men out of Russia trying to avoid the fate of having to be part of this war. And then Russia ran their phony referendum in the next, in the next four regions of Ukraine, claiming them as their own. And Yesterday, Ukraine filed for membership into NATO, which is probably something unlikely to occur, but it's, it's just been 
a lot of stuff happening there. And it just, uh, well, it in some ways keeps getting worse, but, uh, and it's hard to know where this is going from here. And on the lighter side, last weekend, Jim's trivia team placed third in the uh, in a trivia contest in the world's headquarters for trivia, which is Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Jim, you want to tell us about that? Well, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a funny event. They do it in an airport hangar and it's uh, teams of like 10 people at various tables and you're scattered around. And unlike a lot of uh, other trivia contests I'm involved in, there's no notes, there's no access to your phone or to a computer or anything. It's all out of your head, which is the way it used to be in the old days. Um, and um, it was a lot of fun. And yes, we did finish third, which we were really happy with. And I'll say this, it wasn't because of me, it's because we had some younger people on our team that helped a lot. Huh. Well, congratulations, Jim. Well, let's get to our first guest this week, a frequent visitor to River Radio, federal judge John Thunheim. He's the chief U.S. district judge for the District of Minnesota. Judge Thunheim was nominated to the federal court by President Bill Clinton in 1995 and named chief judge of the Minnesota district in 2015. Judge Thunheim has been a guest on all four seasons of River Radio, so it's always a treat to have him back. Welcome, Judge Thunheim. Thank you, Jim, and good morning. Well, good morning to you. And I want to begin by noting that for seven years, you were the uh, chief judge of the Minnesota district, but as of June, that's no longer the case. Why the change? Well, it's a seven-year term by statute, and uh -huh. my seven years were up, and so it passed on to the next uh, judge who was eligible to be chief judge. So the federal rules are very careful about this. They're, it's a seven-year term, and I enjoyed very much uh, serving as chief of our court. Well, part of the reason we want to have you on is to uh, discuss the upcoming Supreme Court session, and we've done that with you before. But uh, before we get to that, I wanted to talk about the session that just ended with a number of momentous decisions uh, that by any measure would be considered a pretty historic session, particularly with the headline case that tossed out Roe versus Wade as the law of the land pertaining to abortion rights. Were you surprised that the court took such a hard turn on that case and, and on some others? Well, I guess I wasn't surprised. I mean, I think that uh, this was uh, mounting for quite some time, and particularly with the new justices on the court. And in retrospect, you could probably see this coming. It was unusual. I mean, the Supreme Court is always expanding and restricting rights. But it, you know, to completely take away a right that had been in existence for 50 years, recognized for 50 years, that would, was what was particularly unusual about the Dobbs case and obviously has been very controversial and looks like it will impact in some way the midterm elections. Right. Uh, in part of the, dis the, the discussion in wake of the Dobbs decision, um, is that idea of settled law that came up a bit to that uh, in uh, the confirmations of a couple of the justices that Donald Trump appointed the people apparently saying that they saw Roe as settled law or how court precedent is treated. Do you think that whole concept is at risk or is this just, you know, a particular instance of a, a, a case or two where this comes into play? 
Well, it's called stare decisis, and it's a, an important principle of the law in our country and in many countries around the world, settled law. So, but the Supreme Court uh, has, has ignored uh, precedent in the past. It's changed precedent. It uh, reserves the right to do that, and that's the court that uh, really does take care of uh, you know, whether it follows the principle of stare decisis or not. I think it's somewhat controversial that justices in their confirmation hearings uh, pledged one way and now are voting another way. This has probably happened in the past as well, but I think that uh, is an issue that probably continues to undermine the credibility of the court. And along that line, the court seems to uh, have low approval ratings in some recent surveys. Do you think that's a, a concern? I do think it's a concern. I mean, our, you know, we depend on, as a judiciary, we depend on respect from the, from the public and, uh, you know, a belief that uh, decisions are made in a, a neutral, fair fashion. And when people stop believing that, that that's a concern. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, Chief Justice Roberts probably is one that does not want to move as fast as some of the other justices to change settled law. But, uh, he doesn't really have the kind of control he might have had uh, in years past. Right. Uh, so let's turn to some of the cases that are on the docket for the current Supreme Court, just to get a, a little brief background on them and things we should be watching for. And I, I picked out just a few cases. Uh, one of them, uh, since we're River Radio, let's begin with an environmental case, Sackett versus the EPA, uh, which may have uh, some potential to put restrictions on federal government powers? Well, it certainly uh, could. Uh, you know, we had uh, the EPA in the center of the action in a case in this past uh, term that uh, affected their ability to uh, regulate air pollution. It didn't really go quite as far as some feared that it would have. But this case, the Sackett case, uh, involves an Idaho couple wanting to build a house on uh, area wetlands areas in, in Idaho that the EPA says that they cannot. So the question is whether under the Clean Water Act, uh, the EPA can go as far as it has to regulate wetlands, because the whole question in the case is whether it... Uh, there's a significant nexus between the, the wetland and a navigable water, waterway. And uh, this, this test is, I think, pretty clear, but they may be changing the test. And that could significantly impact the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate uh, the filling in of wetlands across the country, which they try to do. Uh Another case involving federal funding is Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County, Indiana versus Telefsky, Telefsky. Uh, and this has to do with the Medicaid program. Can you give us some of the basics on that one? Yeah, this, this could be a biggie. Uh, you know, Medicaid is an important federal program. The federal government pays for the cost of health care to people who do not uh, or are below a certain uh, income level. You know, essentially people that have no significant income or relatively minimal income, and it largely affects children and perhaps pregnant women, um, not really older people because Medicare takes care of that, but the Medicaid program is important. And 
in return for the federal government making these payments to states to take care of individuals' health care, uh, there's a right for individuals to bring lawsuits uh, when the system isn't handled well in a particular instance. This case seeks to end that right to bring individual lawsuits, which would essentially mean that only the federal government can enforce the rules on Medicaid. And there are very few resources available for such enforcement. So, you know, likely states can can really dial back on, on Medicaid benefits uh, if this case goes through without fearing lawsuits from individuals or organizations that are challenging decisions that severely impact poor people. So it could have a pretty significant uh, impact. Uh, there are uh, some states uh, that have been pushing to end this individual right. And uh, I think it's been a goal of some social conservatives for a long time. So we'll see what the court does here. I think it would have the possible effect of having a big impact on the Medicaid system. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Uh, there's an affirmative action case that will be decided. Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus President and Fellows of Harvard College. Um, this affirmative action has definitely been something that's been in the court sites actually for a few years. And uh, what's at stake here? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. Apparently, we, we must have cut out there for a second. I was uh, bringing up the uh, Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus the Presidents of Fellows of Harvard College, the affirmative well, action. Well, this case has been split into two. Uh, um, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Judge Tunheim. I, I think we're hearing you, so. Oh. oh, let's see. Are we back? Yeah, I, I've got you now. Okay, good. The, the case has been split into two. One involves Harvard College. The other involves the University of North Carolina. It was split into two because new uh, Justice Jackson uh, is, um, is recused, has recused from hearing the Harvard case. So that's going to be an eight-member court hearing the Harvard case and a nine-member court hearing the North Carolina case. This, uh, you know, the, the both colleges clearly follow the current law uh, from 2016, which was a Supreme Court decision. It was a five to four decision uh, and involving the University of Michigan. And so they're both in clear compliance with that. But this is, um, this is another challenge of, this is probably the fifth time race-based admissions policies have been challenged. It's being challenged by white students and Asian American students who feel that they are discriminated against uh, under the constitution when race is considered as one of many factors in admissions policies. Um, I don't know, this may be the, the time they change this and really eliminate the, uh, the possibility of race being considered at all. There's a lot of corporations which have diversity policies that are worried about this case, especially since you know the Black Lives Matter movement has gained strength across the country. 
many corporations have uh, have adopted diversity policies that are very important to them in terms of their recruitment of employees. And they are worried that a sweeping decision here might impact their programs. And they've written a very significant amicus brief in this case. So many, uh, many people see the handwriting on the wall here that this is kind of the last of race-based admissions policies. And it's just a question of how far the decision goes. Uh, but the colleges involved, it's interesting because they are perfectly in compliance with current Supreme Court precedent. So hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's like, oh, well, we follow the rules and now are the rules changing? So it's an interesting case. I think uh, it, because the court took it, that probably suggests that they're ready with their current voting alignment to, um, to, make, to make a ruling that the constitution prohibits any kind of consideration of race uh, in the admission policies of colleges. Uh, I'm speaking with Honorable John Thunheim, U.S. District Judge for the District of Minnesota. And uh, as you know, folks, as we're recording this live, um, sometimes we uh, have a connection problem, which we've had a little bit here, but I think we're hopefully we're back. Also, I just want to mention those of you who are following on Facebook, our apologies. We got on a little late this morning, uh, a little bit into the show. And if you want to hear the beginning, you just can go to the Marine Library page to catch the replay. Um, okay, let's talk about a couple of cases that have to do with elections. Um, gerrymandering and voting rights are the subject of a case that's known as uh, Merrill versus Milligan. Yeah, this is uh, a challenge to what most people would agree was a racial gerrymandering plan, redistricting plan for congressional seats in the state of Alabama. Uh, it was struck down by a federal court uh, and, uh, and the Court of Appeals. And the Supreme Court uh, uh, in February on a five to four vote in what's typically called their shadow docket allowed Alabama to put this policy into place. It's quite extreme. Um, you know, uh, black voters make up about 27% of the vote in Alabama and the, the gerrymandering plan really restricts their ability to elect uh, down to about 14%. So that's fairly extreme in terms of how it impacts uh, the, the right to vote for African-Americans. So, I mean, if the court approves this, which they tentatively did uh, in February, it may really end any possibility of challenging extreme racial gerrymandering. I mean, Alabama wants a new test and that test would say that the map can only be explained by racial discrimination. And that's a test that is almost impossible to meet for someone who's challenging a gerrymandered plan. So this is interesting. I, it, it looks like the court is ready to do this. Um, it's sort of carte blanche to open the, the door to extreme gerrymandering, which I find problematic because, uh, you know, it really does severely impact the right of individuals to be represented. But, um, you know, there are many minds on this subject. In this case uh, is a big one for the Voting Rights Act, really. Right, right. 
And then one other one that's that really drawn a lot of attention, um, maybe the most notable case is one the court accepted at the last minute as they set the docket for this session, Moore versus Harper. And this one would give legislatures say over election outcomes. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't know. This one's a hard one to understand. This involves something called the independent Oh, hey, uh, this theory has been rejected time and time and time again. Are we out? Uh, yeah, Judge Stunheim, I might ask you to start your answer over. We lost you for a sec, a couple seconds, oh. but now it seems like you're back. So if you would start over on that. Okay, fine. This involves a doctrine called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, a doctrine that's been re rejected many times over uh, the past history of the Supreme Court. Uh, but at least four of the justices has seemed to have indicated their approval of this in some form. There are two provisions of our constitution that says that the rules that govern federal elections shall be, be determined by state legislatures. That has been always understood. Uh, the state has the power to make laws legislative power, so to speak, uh, can uh, can impact how federal elections are uh, handled in a state. So that means the governor, the state legislature, ballot initiative, state courts. So the, the, the case of those constitutional provisions, which would say that only a legislative body can have the power to impact federal elections. And that, of course, uh, would eliminate state courts review, it would eliminate the role of the governor uh, in federal election administration in a state. Uh, you know, and I think it's a cause for great concern because this is a doctrine that no one has really taken very seriously until now. And there are many states where uh, there's a lot of gerrymandering going on. Aaron, you know, control of one lead. And the most extreme result here would be the sole decision maker of who gets electoral votes in the state, which means that a legislature could conceivably uh, overrule the, the vote of the people and award electoral votes to the other uh, party's candidate, which would make a mess out of a presidential election. So this one is one to watch. I don't think they're going to adopt as uh, as law but you know I, I it's it's hard to predict uh because it's just to think that there's there's value in this uh, strange interpretation of the constitution yeah in the, we will be watching that one for sure and uh so one more uh, quick thing i just want to bring up with you uh judge tunheim before we go um where you work, the Diane E. Murphy U.S. Courthouse in Minneapolis, there's a special public art exhibit right now uh, that's called Art from the Inside. I was just wondering if you could tell us about that real quickly. Yeah, we've been uh, having art exhibits in our courthouses for four years now, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful way for new and unknown artists. 
artists to exhibit their works. And it's been fun to see the, the talent that is there. This is art from inside uh, correctional institutions. There are programs that help uh, budding artists who are incarcerated. And this is giving them a chance to have the public see their work. And I think it's a wonderful exhibit, extremely talented artists uh, who happen to be incarcerated right now and uh, have been developing their talents. And yes, I should mention this was um, the program art from the inside was initiated by a Stillwater, uh, former Stillwater Prison Corrections Officer, Antonio Espinoza. And he founded this initiative after the killing of uh, Joseph Gom at the Stillwater Prison, a correctional officer who was tragically murdered by an inmate in 2018. So yeah, definitely looks like a really interesting uh, exhibit. And Judge Thunheim, as always, an instructive conversation with you on our program. Sorry, we had a few connection problems there, but I really appreciate your willingness to take time out of your Saturday morning to be with us. Glad to do it, Jim. Thank you very much. And of course, we have yeah, one, one more, more connection problem right at the end, but the Honorable John Thunheim is U.S. District Judge in the District of Minnesota. Since our last program, word came out that the Amherst Wilder Foundation had come to an agreement to sell its Wilder Forest property to the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership. This is news with a big impact locally because Wilder Forest is the location of River Grove, the charter elementary school created after the Stillwater School District closed three elementary schools, including Marine. As we walk through this story today and bring you up to date with the latest, here are four entities that we'll regularly refer to. Wilder Forest, who owns the property in question, River Grove School, current tenants of that property, Manitou Fund, owner of an adjacent property that formerly housed the Warner Nature Center, and the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership. River Grove is now um, in its sixth year on the site. It started at Wilder Forest in 2017, initially as a temporary location. The group that first formed the charter school had every intention of it being located in the then shuttered Marine Elementary School building. The village of Marine intended to purchase that building to house River Grove, but there were delays before the Stillwater School District made the building available for sale. However, once the school building was acquired, the board of River Grove determined that they preferred to remain located in the woods of Wilder Forest. They ultimately hoped to put together a separate entity to purchase the 70 acres of land that makes up the campus of River Grove, but by law, that process couldn't even begin until next summer. However, the future of the school was thrown into doubt when word was released on September 21st that the Wilder Foundation planned to sell the entire 600 acres of its property in May Township to the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership. The partnership reportedly plans to create a camp at the location that will operate during summer months, but also potentially over the course of the school year. According to a story in the Pioneer Press, that camp would open in the summer of 2024. We're going to take a few minutes right now to tell you more about what we know about the planned sale and where things stand today for River Grove. Let's start with a little bit about the timeline. There seem to be conflicting views on what transpired that led to where we are today. 
River Grove officials have indicated that they were caught by surprise with the announcement of the sale by Wilder. The director of the, of the school, Drew Goodson, spoke with River Radio yesterday and said he feels as if something was going on behind the scenes that prompted the sale to the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership. They believed up to that point that they had a good line of communication with Wilder. River Grove officials have been working with Manitou Fund, the owners of the neighboring property that once housed the Warner Nature Center. Manitou officials expressed some interest in purchasing the Wilder Forest land. At a parents' meeting held at the school on Monday night, a River Grove parent involved in property matters stated that Wilder officials told him it would not be morally right for us to not go back to River Grove or to the Manitou Fund before we make a final decision. The River Grove people say Manitou claims they never had a chance to put in a bid for the property before being informed that the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership had made their offer. Wilder Forest officials have a different take on this. They told River Radio that Wilder and Manitou Fund officials corresponded about the property from late January until late June. In late June, they informed Manitou that there was another party, the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership, that was considering a possible purchase of the Wilder Forest property. Wilder says they met with Manitou in June when Manitou offered a verbal opinion on the value of the Wilder Forest property, which Wilder describes as being significantly below the appraised value. Wilder states that Manitou, the owners of the neighboring property, had as many opportunities to make an offer on Wilder Forest as any other party. On July 15th, this is more than two months ago, Wilder Foundation informed both Manitou and River Grove that they had accepted a letter of intent from the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership and would be working with them in good faith toward a purchase agreement and sale. After the story of the sale first appeared in the St. Paul Pioneer Press on September 21st, Manitou brought forward an offer to purchase the Wilder property, presumably as a way to preserve River Grove's location. Then last Tuesday, the Wilder Foundation's Board of Directors approved a purchase agreement from the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership. Wilder says the offer they received last week from Manitou was the first formal offer it had received from any party in the last year, except for the offer they ultimately accepted from the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership. Drew Goodson at River Grove told River Radio that in his opinion, the process has been different than what Wilder officials laid out. Wilder stated that the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership will reach out to River Grove and other tenants leasing space on the property to explore potential arrangements that could benefit all parties. Goodson says the school has not yet been approached by anybody with the Catholic organization. There is an online petition seeking to convince Wilder to change its mind and allow River Grove to remain in the forest. Goodson hopes that there's enough pressure brought to bear that Wilder reconsiders its position. In the meantime, the school is considering its alternatives. There seems to be interest among the Manitou Fund to house the school on the property that used to be home to Warner Nature Center. There are no major buildings for a school there today, so a temporary solution would be to obtain modular, portable units to house students. Goodson says the idea of setting up on the former Warner Nature Center site is a big lift and a huge burden for River Grove, but he's confident the school will land on its feet. 
One possibility that interests River Grove, assuming the sale to the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership goes through, is that the new owners allow the school to stay on the Wilder site for a couple of years until it can settle on a more permanent option. Again, the school says they have not yet had any contact with the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership. So there's a lot of work ahead to be sure. Another party in this whole process is the Maytown Board, and I spoke to Board Chair John Adams yesterday. Some questions have been raised about the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnerships plans. One Catholic publication writing about the plans for a camp long before the purchase of Wilder actually occurred stated that they had intentions of building a 25,000 square foot lodge that holds 1,000 people and cabins for 300 to 400 more people and a retreat center. That's far larger than the current school footprint that houses 225 students. Adam says the township has no position on the sale of the property, but that the buyer will have to seek a conditional use permit for the Wilder Forest land. He says the board is concerned about the impact on infrastructure. Questions they will have include how many people are using the property and what are the impacts on the roads. Adam says they'll need to approve a level of usage for Wilder Forest land if it changes hands. He also mentioned that the board is a big supporter of River Grove, However, if the school does move to the Manitou Fund property next door, it will need to request an amended conditional use permit. And that's what we know to date. This is obviously a story we will keep following as further details and developments emerge over time. Well, River Radio is made possible by the Marine Community Library, and 2022 marks the 10th anniversary for our all-volunteer library. As I like to say, on a square foot by square foot basis, the best library in America. We're celebrating our 10th birthday this Friday, October 7th, and this will be an event at the Marine Village Hall. Along with Cake, we're going to feature a presentation from the very talented local children's book author, Michael Hall. He's a New York Times best-selling author of 11 children's books. He'll talk about his craft and read stories. So please come, bring the kids along. It's a family-friendly event, 7 p.m. Friday night at the Marine Village Hall. Just a couple of other library things I want to mention. We will have two candidate forums coming up that we're hosting. The first is October 20th, featuring the three candidates for Marine City Council. The second is October 27th with the two mayoral candidates in Marine. Both events are at seven o'clock at the Marine Village Hall. Our next guest is Robin Garwood. Robin is an artist based in St. Paul. He works as a printmaker, installation artist, writer, and storyteller. This past summer, Robin paddled a solo canoe down the Mississippi River from Lake Itasca to the Gulf of Mexico. After his return, he came out to Marine and was the Pine Needles artist in residence. Robin is working on a book project that will share his river journey and explore the impact human interventions have had on the Mississippi. Welcome to River Radio, Robin. Thanks, Gail. Well, you started paddling on the Mississippi back on May 30th. Um, that river, by the way, is 2,300 or so miles. So what made you decide to do this long journey and when did you uh, decide you were gonna do it? Well, I've wanted to do something like this for a long time. Um, I've, I've done several uh, longish boundary water strips 
but I, I, I really wanted to do something like this at some point. Uh, and uh, I, I lost my job at the end of December. Um, and uh, it was a wonderful opportunity. Um, so that was sort of the, the silver lining there. Um, and yeah, I, uh, the Mississippi has always been my watershed. I grew up in St. Paul up on Dayton's Bluff. I've lived in Minneapolis for years. Uh, and so that was the reason why the Mississippi, I think, sort of called out to me. Well, you, there's a lot of research that goes, goes into doing uh, something that takes this long. You were on the water for over seven or paddling over 70 days. Uh, what did your research tell you about the Mississippi? Yeah, I read basically everything I could get my hands on, uh, including, um, of course, you know, Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi from back in the 1880s, uh, all the way up through much more recent stuff. Um, a wonderful book called The, the River We Have Wrought uh, about the, the construction of the lock and dam systems. Um, but then I also had to do a bunch of research into just sort of like, what kinds of things should I bring with me? Um, uh, how, how much food is the right amount of food? Uh, and I, I had to tweak my, my setup a few times as I, as I went down the river. Um, so I definitely didn't have it quite right at the, at the very beginning, but, um, yeah, it, uh, had, had to get all my army corps maps and I had to, um, look at what other people have, have done in terms of finding their way places. Um, my trip was maybe a little bit unique in that I also brought with me a folding bicycle and a trailer for the boat so that I could get around big flat water or, or places where, um, it was dangerous to me in some way. Uh, also I could get out at cities and, and sort of bike around if I wanted to get into Memphis or whatever. You chose to go solo or didn't you? I did choose to go solo. It would have been fun to do it with somebody else, but I think I was also very attracted to the idea of having that time by myself. Um, it, I, I had a pretty, uh, intense and very social job for a long time. I worked as a policy aide to a Minneapolis city council member. Um, and so the idea of being by myself for that long actually sounded pretty great. So how did people treat you along the way? I found that people were unfailingly uh, kind and, and helpful. Um, I actually, at, at some point, a guy handed me an envelope with $180 in it just wow. like, because I was doing the trip and he was so moved or whatever. Um, I uh, later on down in the in the lower river, a number of uh, guys and it was always guys in uh, in fishing boats approached me and every single time they offered me a beer. Um, so people people were great. People were really, really nice. Um, huh. um, you must have had some really hard days when there were severe headwinds or it was raining, but you still had miles to go or there were mosquitoes chasing you. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I definitely did have a number of hard days that northern Minnesota was was especially bad this year in terms of the mosquitoes and the ticks. Um, and so that was a that was a bit of a psychological slog. I had to wear my head net basically all the time that I was not in the boat. Um, it, up above, I, I believe it was maybe Sauk Rapids, um, uh, my, my canoe left without me in the middle of the night and I had to get on, there's a, there's a Facebook page for people who do the Mississippi River paddle, um, and basically just ask folks for help and, uh, and they connected me with a guy who was a couple of miles downstream who, who used his motorboat to 
find my canoe and, and bring it back to me. Um, and that was one of my lessons is always, always tie up, no matter how secure you think the, the boat is, it's not as secure as you think. Um, I also, I had some tough times with some of the, the um, locks. Uh, so the lock down at Trempolo, uh, I, I went into it with a pretty stiff tailwind and it blew me past the, uh, the pull cord. So they didn't know I was there and I was just sort of being tossed around eventually down in their in their doors essentially um uh, in big chaotic waves uh, and and just sort of yelling for help and they they eventually heard me and threw me a line down See, explain uh, the pole cord to people who've not gone through a lock before and not sure how that works especially for a small boat like you had when you're in that lock with other bigger boats yeah so when you approach the the lock uh, at least in the upper river there's a there's a place where you can pull over. There's like a ladder, and it has a cord where you can where you can pull and um, and communicate with the folks in the lock. Um, a lot of folks uh, in in larger boats have radios, and so they're communicating with the lock that way. Uh, but for folks who don't have a radio, especially in in, in smaller boats like canoes and kayaks, that's the option. Um, but it's not an especially great option if you've got a strong tailwind that that is because the the waves don't just hit the the lock wall; they hit the lock wall and then bounce off, and so you've got these this chaos down there. Um, I also okay. found that it, at, in the lower river, at the where the Atchafalaya comes off of the Mississippi, they've given up on the pull cord, or they never installed one in the first place. So even getting in touch with those guys was like almost impossible. So your scary experience was. Um... The possibility of those doors when they open to let everybody out that you would get between the door and the wall, I suppose. Well, that that was part of the fear, but the the more direct part of the fear was that the boat was going to flip over. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, I was just the 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 waves were really very large, and I could not get myself back sort of out against them. Uh, mm. So I was I was pretty much stuck there, and I was fairly rapidly getting more and more exhausted. Yeah. Well, you were in a 14-foot canoe among barges and tugs in one of the world's largest waterways. You got to tell me how you negotiated or communicated even with those barges if you were near them. Yeah, so, and and the for folks who haven't been in the lower river, so you've seen barges maybe out like in the Mississippi at St. Paul pushing maybe like the, the toe is pushing one or two or maybe three. The most that I saw in uh, being pushed by one toe was 49, seven wide and seven long. Um, and that was the high end, but it was very typical to see 30 barges being pushed at once. Um, and they leave behind them a very interesting wake. Uh, it doesn't go out towards the shore. It stays right behind the toe. And it's something like maybe 10 feet tall. And it's just this big sine wave that stays behind them until it until it fades. Um, and so, yeah, I stayed about as far away from them as I could. Uh, and that was made more difficult by uh, the fact that, that the Army Corps has installed what, what's called wing dams. So it's just like walls made of rock under the surface of the water out maybe a quarter to a third to halfway across the river on the inside of, of the bends. So there was only so far away from the navigation channel that I could really get safely. Um, so it, it was, it, it, 
sometimes felt a little dicey and and I was definitely always aware of where they were and what line they wanted to be on so that I could be somewhere else. Yeah, it's not like they can stop on a dime. Did you ever uh, communicate by signaling uh, to the tug or did they they not pay attention to you and you were on your own? Yeah, I I was mostly just on my own. Uh, there, There was one time somewhere, I think in maybe Missouri, where the the wind conditions of that day basically necessitated that I was on the right side. And that's kind of where they all wanted to be too. Mm. Um, and I had to try to figure out what they, what they wanted to do uh, because they were doing like a whole big, like loading, unloading thing. So it wasn't just one tug. It was, it was the, 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 the big towboat and then smaller ones that were moving individual barges like in onto its load. Uh-huh. Um, and that was a little bit hard for us to, to quite like negotiate. Um, and I think, I think when the, the, one of the smaller tugs came past me, uh, the, the guys were yelling at me on their, on their loudspeaker, but I couldn't quite make out what they were trying to say, but I, I think that they were not. At oh, they weren't offering you no beer, huh? No, 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 no. Okay. Okay. Hey, I'm talking with Robin Garwood. Robin paddled a solo canoe down the Mississippi river from Lake Itasca to the Gulf of Mexico this past summer. He is also the most recent artist in residence at Pine Needles. So Robin, I got to ask you this question. Anybody who goes on a really long trip sometimes feels like calling it quits at some point. Did you ever feel like quitting? I, yes, it definitely crossed my mind several times. Um, I thought about quitting, uh, each time I got myself into a pretty dangerous situation, so that that lock at Trempolo, and then the time that I went basically over one of the wing dams just below Memphis, um, also just above Memphis, uh, in the middle of the night, my uh, my tent blew over in a storm. It was was destroyed and sort of collapsed on me, and I had to hold it up all night long so that it didn't completely flood, um, and that was. That was pretty rough. It was nice that I, I was right at Memphis and I had already planned to take a couple of days with a friend. So I, I, I had an opportunity to sort of emotionally reset a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, where the Ohio comes in at Cairo, the current really died for like a couple of days. And I, I had this sense of like, gosh, if I just have to just brute force my way down this river for the rest of the way, I am. I don't know that I want to do that anymore. Um, But then the current picked up in the big turn right um, above New Madrid. And, uh, and that, that felt pretty good actually with the, the, the like, Oh, it's back. Okay, great. Uh, We can keep doing this. Well, when you and I talked earlier this week, you mentioned that you did research about the river, especially about what the Mississippi was like back in the 1800s. Tell us how the rivers changed from what you've researched and now what you've experienced. Yeah, it's really, um, really evident when you are, are on the river um, at, the, at that river level, how much we have changed it. So everything from up in northern Minnesota, we've, we've built some big dams at Winnebagashish and uh, Cass and Popagama that have really, really changed the, the nature of those lakes and, and that river. But the, um, the lock and dam system is a, has, has really it's basically taken the river and turned it from a river to this set of sort of terraced lakes with little river sections. And then you get to a big flat water with no current. Um, and it's very clearly not what the river actually like wants to be. 
Um, and uh, it has changed very much the ecology of those areas. I mean, there are, there are fish that used to get up into Minnesota from far, far south that just can't, they, they physically can't get there anymore. And then mussels and various other creatures that depend on those fish for, uh, for, for movement and other things have also been extirpated um, from, from those areas. And we're getting the flip side, which is that the invasive carp are, are making their way further and further up the river. Um, and I, I encountered quite a few of those. They're really big. They jump way out of the water. I had several of them jump actually over the bow of the boat. Huh. Um, and you know, if, if, if they hit you, you'll, you'll definitely know they're, they're, they're big fish. Um, in the lower river, uh, the, the wing dams and, and what they call revetments, which is basically a wall of either rock or concrete on the outside of every bend, go just all the way down the river. So we, we have turned the river from a, a changing natural system to something where we're trying to lock it in as it, as it was at a certain moment and prevent it from changing anymore. Uh, and, and it has... I think really, really major impacts on the ecology of the of the river, and it makes it quite frankly, it makes it much more hostile to somebody who's trying to do a a, uh, a human powered paddle. Um, it basically we've taken something that that used to be a river and we turn it into something kind of like a freeway. Um, that's how it felt often to me was like I was I was trying to ride a bicycle on a freeway. So uh, going to your Pine Needles residency, you were there for uh, two weeks, three weeks? Four weeks, actually. Four weeks. You were there for four weeks. Um, how was your experience going from, well, the heavily industrial Mississippi to the quiet and serene St. Croix River? Uh, it, was, it was quite an adjustment in a whole lot of different ways. Uh, partly just being cool and then eventually cold was something I hadn't experienced in quite some time. Uh, it's it's really incredibly hot down in um, Mississippi and, and Louisiana where I had been. Um, so so that was very refreshing. Um, it was interesting for me to be in a place that was that was so so visually stunning, so beautiful, and not to have to get up every day and, and like pack up my my house and and move. You know, to to stay in one spot was was really interesting. Um, I also have to say <laughs> I saw about. I don't know, a million percent more people paddling in just a few days on uh, from, from that vantage point at Pine Needles than I had seen on the entirety of the Mississippi River. I, I saw maybe four people paddling on the Mississippi River over, over the course of three months. Wow, that's four people, huh? I'm guessing... I'm guessing you'll have an exhibit of your art out here to, to the public. Um, uh, any idea when that will be? We don't have a date yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Mary Jo Vandell about doing something at her gallery space. Oh, that'll be that'll be great. Folks know where her gallery is, so that'll be super. So what's next for you? Another big adventure? Well, uh, today I'm going down to the, the Sogan Valley Art Fair down near Cannon Falls, and, uh, and I'll, I'll have some of the stuff that I made at, at Pine Needles and some earlier work, too. Uh, and then after that, after this weekend, I'm, I'm really not sure. Just dreaming, huh? Yeah. Maybe. Oh, good. Well, Robin, thanks for talking with us today. We look forward to your art exhibit out here in Marine. All right. Thanks so much. 
That was Robin Garwood. Robin paddled a solo canoe down the Mississippi River this past summer. He was also the most recent artist in residence at Pine Needles. In the news, the Marine City Council is looking for feedback on a downtown sign that is being considered for the green space off Highway 95 near Maple Street. If you go to the city website, you can take a short survey and choose between four designs or no sign at all. Public input is appreciated. Another heavy metal day is coming up for Marine residents. Mark your calendar for October 15th from nine to noon behind Security State Bank. You could bring large bulky items like mattresses, TVs, dehumidifiers, and more. Prices for each item are listed on the Marine City website. A celebration marking the 50th anniversary of the protection of the Lower St. Croix River will be held Wednesday, October 12th in the Marine Village Hall from 6.30 to 8 p.m. The Wild Rivers Conservancy is hosting this event featuring speakers from the National Park Service, including Regional Deputy Director Rick Clark and St. Croix Riverway Superintendent Craig Hansen. Community Thread will host its annual Rake a Difference Day on Saturday, March or October 22nd. Through this um, service event, volunteer groups are matched to adults age 55 and over, as well as adults with disabilities who need yard raking assistance in Washington County. Volunteer groups may make arrangements with matched homeowners for another day if necessary. These volunteer groups typically include families, scout troops, service clubs, school groups, and businesses. You can contact Community Thread through our show page. And this final news item is a secret. I'm serious, it's a secret. There's going to be a customer appreciation surprise party for area resident Carol Four on Sunday, October 9th from one to three at the Surf Yogurt, Yogurt Bar in Marine. Carol, as many of you know, is a top-notch welder who lives over by Carnelian. He's welded everything from metal artwork and boat trailers to straightening out my bird feeder poles after bear attacks. Carol was also inspirational in helping to build the new portable bread oven that will soon make its debut at Christ Lutheran Church. Root beer floats and cake will be provided. Plus, the Vikings game will be on TV at the restaurant. Carol's a big Vikings fan. So remember, this is a surprise. So no telling Carol. I think that is so great. Carol is just a local legend. Um, an important note, we are taking a couple of weeks off. Uh, River Radio We'll actually be back in three weeks. Our next show is Saturday, October 22nd, 9 a.m. And that program is titled, Here Come the Midterms. We'll be bringing in our illustrious political roundtable, round Lori Sturdivant of the Star Tribune, Fred D. Sam Lazaro of PBS NewsHour, and our own national political editor, Brian Gruis, to discuss what to expect as Election Day approaches. And speaking of Election Day, we are returning with live Election Night coverage this year on Tuesday, November 8th. It's going to start at 9 p.m. when we should have some results in hand. You'll find the link to our live Zoom coverage, and uh, we'll have results of local races in Scandia, Marine and Stillwater, as well as school board races that we'll be following and, and key legislative races and the national scene as well. Mark that on your calendar the only place you can find truly local election night coverage, and there'll be a link on the library website. So please check that out. 
Thanks again to our guests, Judge John Thunheim and Robin Garwood. We take you out with the suburbs. See you again in three weeks. And remember, you heard it right here on River Radio.